0: Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British
1: Brothers, the True Cry podcast.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. Please welcome to the show, forensic anthropologist Sam Rennie. Welcome Sam. Thank you kindly, thanks for having me. It's cool to have you on. So I reached out to Sam, Christ knows how long ago, but because of Sam's busy, busy schedule at what you and you at Bournemouth, right? Uh, Yeah, I'm down south in Bournemouth. So we've had a bit of back and forth and we finally managed to connect today because I've been desperate to get a forensic anthropologist on the show. The reason being is whenever I read a true crime book or read a case report from an article online, I see forensic anthropologist X, Y, and Z came in and found out that this happened. And I just, can you explain to me in layman terms what a forensic anthropologist is and what they do? So
1: to to make it very simple, we work on the identification of human remains. Full stop. <laughs> that's that's essentially <laughs> yeah. real boiled down to it. The forensic bit is normally we work within like the legal system of whatever country we reside in or being asked to work in. So for us, it's okay. Set of remains are here. Can you tell us? A, are they human? Right. <laughs> um, if it is, then it's like okay. What can you tell me about them? You know, male, female, age at death, how tall they were, um, just to kind of build up a little profile of who they are, and then how that can aid in an investigation to identify someone.
0: So, is this typically when a body is found that, for whatever reason, the team isn't able to identify that person's identity?
1: Yeah, so it's normally when, like, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, how do you put it? Like on TV, whenever they see it and they always say, oh, can you identify this victim? And a family comes over and they visually identify them. And they go, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's, you know, my loved one. It's when that's not possible. So normally we work with either the human skeleton or it could be, like, heavily burnt remains, heavy decomposition mummified remains, that type of world.
0: How common are mummified remains?
1: More so than you would think. Uh, It's not solely in um, ancient Egypt. It's normally when the the body is just completely dried out into a husk. Right. And that's technically mummification.
0: Is there not a risk of... I've got, I have got—I can't remember what Indiana Jones film it was, where he unearths a mummy and it just disintegrates because of the age. Is there a risk of that at all?
1: No and yes. Yes and no, both at the same time. <laughs> um, one is Indiana Jones. I don't believe that that movie actually exists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that there's four Indiana Jones movies. The fourth one doesn't exist. Okay. One to three,
0: all good 4 You're a hater of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull
1: nah it, it it doesn't even exist okay. it doesn't exist okay
0: but what about the disintegrating body
1: <laughs> dis- as in like so we so we can kind of get that maybe not to that extent but it all depends on the preservation of the remains especially if they're in the ground so if they're like if they've been waterlogged for decades and decades and stuff like that and then they dried out and then they get waterlogged again and then they get dried out again and then they get waterlogged again just due to like environmental processes that we see every day. The remains then turn into you obviously we've got decomposition so it then turns into bone but then it's something that you know when, when I was training and I still describe it now is the remains turn into something like biscuit crumbs. Right. Okay. Where you'll kind of touch it and you can feel how fragile it is. And you lift it and it leaves like a little powder on the ground because it's slowly flaking off. So the whole disintegration thing does happen, but not really in like a.
0: Yeah. Not instantaneous.
1: Yeah. It's not instantaneous. It's uh, more of a. You can normally just feel it and it's just like, right. Everything, the bone is just flaking. Okay. And it's normally just due to it being dried and then waterlogged dried waterlogged and that constant process okay yeah. what
0: does the what does the training look like so let's say i want to become an anthropologist Yes. how do i go about that first of all and, and let's say i get accepted onto some course miraculously <laughs> what, what, does my, what, <laughs> what does my training look like you tra- it. it all
1: depends there's quite there's several routes in which you can kind of go through it you can either do Sadly, you can't just do an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's degree, and then you can sign yourself off and go, Hey, this is this is who I am now. Mm. It does require you to do more. So normally we see a lot of students either do their undergraduate degree, their their bachelor's, of, their bachelor's of science in forensic anthropology. There's a couple of courses in the UK which focus on that. You've got one at Liverpool, John Moores, and then one up at Dundee. They seem to be kind of like the big hitters when it kind of comes to it but that's not saying if you don't go to those places you can't do anything it then you can go from studying straight up archaeology or medical science anatomy life sciences so as long as you've got an understanding of humans you can kind of then for your undergraduate that's kind of like how you can work it It it's better to go and do a master's degree. You know, because that's where we can do a little bit more heavy training with you, you know, dealing with remains in a specific way, um, how to think. We call it thinking forensically. So the types of questions that you're going to start asking yourself, like, oh, okay, I'm going to be analyzing this as a particular way and thought process that you'll do it. And then kind of like once you've done kind of like that masters, that's kind of, kind of like when you can kind of start branching out into being a practitioner. Um, it's very difficult to be a practitioner, especially in the UK. We're just an island. There's not that many dead people that need our attention, to be honest. You know, our climate is rather temperate, you know. So a lot of the stuff can be dealt with by friends, a forensic pathologist and a coroner. It's very easy. It's more of a rarity that, you know, the remains are in such a state that we get called in.
0: So what sort of countries would be more likely to require someone oh, in anthropology. All over.
1: Um, like it's forensic anthropology is huge in the uh, huge in the US. But the US is huge. Mm. And it's got, you know so there there is a large call for that and the way their system works, they're more integrated as well. But I used to live over in South Africa and there's a huge call out for identification of remains there. You know, it's a very large country with a very high murder rate per capita so
0: there's always something to do i like how you call it forensic anth is that what forensic anth? yeah it's, that's it's what those like, in the know call it
1: <laughs> no it's just, it's just it's just my shorthand it's, it's forensic anth and then it's forensic path for forensic pathology forensic yeah. arc for ah. forensic archaeology yeah, yeah, it's i'm just lazy
0: <laughs> forensic that's good talks. for an anthropologist to be lazy yeah Exactly. we always find the easiest ways to do things. Forensic talks, yeah. Do you work closer with forensic archaeologists? Because I know they're different, but they seem quite similar. What what kind of is the big difference between the two? So normally
1: it, it all depends on, on how we play together. So the times when we'll kind of play together in that in that type of thing, the forensic arc or the forensic archaeologist is really good at say that location of clandestine graves you know, graves that don't want to be found at all, you know, or we're talking mass burials. Okay. That don't want to be found. So they're really good at locating it. And as an forensic and or as part of my training that I did, I'm a good dog's body when it comes to archaeological excavation. Like I can assist you in that. And since my specialism is in human remains, I know a bone the size of a thumbnail when I see it. So that's kind of like when we'll work together. They will kind of take point on that and they'll understand the great, uh, kind of like the, the site information. We call it the stratigraphy. So when we do an excavation and we do, you see that we tend to go down in like a box mm. you know, with straight walls. So we can look at those straight walls and look at the stratigraphy. We can look at the different layers that's going like, this is a new layer because we can see that new soil was put on top. Whilst right. below it is the old soil. Got you. So we can kind of see that. And the forensic archaeologists are really good with that, really good at planning, really good at recording, noting where everything is in this potential grave to the minutia, what it is, how do you record it? And then we'd kind of work together then as a team to lift uh, the remains out of that burial site. So that's when we kind of work together. So they're in charge of the entire
0: grave, right? So they say dig there, and you say yes, sir.
1: <laughs> oh, for me, yeah, because I'm a dog's body, and they'll just be like, "Do you have your trowel?" Yes, I have my trowel. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sam, stop! Don't do that. Okay, no problem. <laughs> so yeah, and then when when the human remains are kind of like lifted, that's when it becomes more of the forensic kind of anthropology's domain. Because the forensic archaeologist has got their gravesite and they're doing all the recording for that. It's now, say, my job to analyse what has been lifted, analyse those human remains to kind of aid us in trying to figure out who they were.
0: What's the first step of that analysis look like?
1: Uh, The first step, well, it all depends on the situation that you kind of get the remains in. Well the first question that I always, that we all ask ourselves as soon as we get given something, be it from the police or as soon as we've lifted
0: something, is, is it human? Can you know on site by now?
1: Half the time, yeah. As in, yeah, I've spent 10 years looking at, over 10 years looking at human remains. So we've got a good eye for it. I can look at a picture and be like, that's not human. That's, that could be a sheep. Or that's last night's KFC that's been dumped in the in the street, and that happens more often than not. Or it's just like those are those are like um, pork ribs. So that's the first question that we always kind of ask ourselves whenever we get handed something: is is this human? Because if it's not human, then it doesn't fall within my role
0: because I focus on humans. So let's say then some remains have been found, and in this in this case. However it's been identified, you know, you know it's human.
1: Yeah. Our next step is, it's something that we call MNI, which stands for minimum number of individuals. So whilst we're doing that, we also, we take notation of like how well preserved the remains are in, you know, are they biscuit crumbs? You know, are they in tiny, small pieces, heavily fragmented like a jigsaw? Or are we dealing with a complete, bone and how much of the skeleton is there is it skull to toes you know is it all present or is it just bits and pieces um but we perform this analysis called an mni so minimum number of individuals because normally sometimes we can just be given things just a box and be like here you go and it's just like okay how many people are in this box so the way that we go around that is we lay the remains out in something called anatomical position. We we'll lay them out on a table as if a person was lying on the table with their palms facing up, you know, just stretched out, you know, just having a nice relax <laughs> um, and laid out. And because we're laying the skeleton out and stuff like that, if we see any duplicated bones, I know you've only got two upper arm bones. You're humorous. Yeah. I know you've only got two of them, and I know you've only got one on the left and one on the right and if I find something that is another right humorous then I know I'm dealing with more than one person that's then kind of like oh no <laughs> I'm dealing with more than one okay now I've got to try and pass out who these individuals are to make sure I get two individuals or three individuals and not frankenstein them together
0: right okay
1: so we normally do that is with that it then takes a lot more it then takes further analysis, which then goes into our next steps, which is broadly termed, we create a biological profile. And that biological profile is, what can the bones tell us about who this person was biologically? Age at death, within a loose margin of error, you know, we're not as good as going, you know, they are 36 years old and three months. It's normally like the person is between 35 and 45 or 45 and over
0: okay and is this all is this all data retrieved from the bones themselves or is this the bones differ as people get older yeah but
1: so it's the bones so we, we do go under kind of like this maturation maturation process so we all know that like babies have significantly more bones than an adult so I, once we reach kind of that age of where we know that the child has kind of like stopped growing so to speak and we know that we've got 206 bones that we need to account for and then as we age we see age related changes to certain areas of the skeleton it's never really due to wear and tear but it's just kind of like you can kind of see that the body has undergone a lot of processes of life processes right so we kind of look at certain areas of the skeleton to give us an idea of how old they were if it's a kid sadly it's a lot easier because we up until i would say well especially when they're younger we use teeth to age because we kind of know that oh, at the age of 12 like the second permanent molar that we have is normally erupting and it's normally pretty standard
0: okay i'm just thinking because you know you hear like when you die and it's not to do with bones necessarily but when you die I was just thinking randomly. They say like your hair keeps growing, your nose and ears keep growing. Is that is that true? Uh, no, um, I but it, but I understand it's not true. But from
1: an outside perspective, it is because when you on so so when you die, what actually happens is that you know you lose moisture, you lose you know you lose a little bit of fluid, so you dry out a little bit, which mm. means your skin contracts. So your hair gr- growing in inverted commas. It's just the hair actually showing more because the skin has receded slightly.
0: Right. OK. Yeah. So it's so almost like the root would kind of be showing that kind of.
1: Yeah. Not, not as far as the root, but you just get that little bit more right. kind of showing. So people go like, okay. well, the hair wasn't that long before. And it's just like true. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, really... so um, it doesn't it doesn't truly grow. It's normally, it's kind of like people then say like, oh, uh, like your nails grow as well. And that's just due to a little bit more of a skin kind of just being more taut.
0: Well, Mythbusters, that's what this is. (laughs) Should change the show name.
1: change the show to
0: Mythbusters. (laughs) How hard is it to, let's rewind it all the way back to the first set of remains that you worked on as a trainee, I assume. Is it hard to disassociate that from being a person or to you, is it just work? Uh. Would this be not for when I was at uni, but would
1: you say like my first forensic case?
0: Yeah, let's go first professional case. Let's first, say. friends.
1: Well, my first professional case was was a jump in the deep end. I'm not gonna lie, so it was like because it was so hectic, it was my brain can go into panic mode, but super professional. So I just kind of like right, I'm in work mode now. This is what I need to deal with because my first full professional thing I was working on a plane crash. Wow. So it was Jesus very much uh right okay this is what we're doing and yeah so it was a case of compartmentalizing disassociation that type of thing but because there was so much happening it was right okay I know that what my job is they are human they are doing this they're doing this so there is a lot more care and attention because it is your first case as well and you always want to try and every case that you do you want to do your absolute best to try and deal with this
0: so I'm just, you know how it's mainly bones that you deal with, right? Predominantly, yeah. So what's, in theory then, it, bones must be in the ground a fair while before stuff like skin disintegrates and stuff. What's the, it's a really morbid question, but what's the freshest set of remains you've worked on? I know it sounds horrible to ask. Plane crash. Okay, so that was that's just happened and you've gone in, is that right?
1: Uh, a plane went down in November. I was there in February.
0: Okay, three months. And
1: it was a, uh, it was gooey. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I saw. And even though, like, predominantly, a lot of my training was on like skeletons and stuff like that, i I still know my anatomy. I still know my soft tissue anatomy, and we also deal with soft tissue. So that's where my training in soft tissue really came into play because it's just like,
0: well, um... <laughs> so is the two separate aspects of anthropology then there's the bone side and the soft skin side or is it kind of one and the same
1: it's kind of amalgamated into one as in you'll you will have those who are more who will purposely train themselves solely more in the dry bone because they know within themselves that i don't want to deal with flesh i don't want to deal with you know, i want to deal with stuff that's just bone
0: it's probably easier to disassociate if it's just bone
1: so much it sounds horrible. It really is, because they don't, I don't want to say there's not much of a smell, because there is, but it is one of those. It's just like, yeah, I, I look at a skull, but there's still no face there. Yeah. So, yeah, for some people, it's a lot easier to disassociate. For me, it's, I don't want to say I'm happy with either, because that makes me sound like, a, a you know, a weirdo. <laughs> but it's, um I can work well with both.
0: So let's take it the other way then. What's the oldest set of remains you've come across?
1: I've dealt with is 10,000 years old. Wow.
0: Yeah. So my history's not great. <laughs> what time period is that? Is that ancient well, Egypt or is that bloody... So Can't that play. is,
1: it's um, it's hunter-gatherers. Okay. So oh. it's kind of, and that is in Mexico. Right. 10,000. Wow. 10,000 years give or take ten thousand either side yeah you know uh yeah i'm trying i'm trying to think the dating on that i think it's like give or take 400 years but don't quote me on that okay. Okay. but yeah so that, that's wow. the oldest and i remember when i first looked at it i i, I was there in in mexico and i got brought in and I like hey we've got this so i just hold it i just hold the skull in my hands and I go Oh, yeah, by the way, Sam, this is ten thousand years old. It's like the second oldest complete skeleton in the Americas. And I'm like, you are telling me this whilst I'm holding it <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have told me this before <laughs> like yeah, don't tell yeah. me whilst I'm holding it. So yeah, so that's the oldest so that's that's then obviously leaving the the profession of forensic anthropology, and that's going more into the general overarching profession of biological anthropology Mm -hmm. where we just deal with people
0: what is the if you can kind of describe the difference between what a 10,000 year old skull would look like versus one that say is between naught and five years old is it the color the size the size i assume if it's 10,000 possibly
1: it, the size
0: is, oh, it, quite a quick turnaround for evolution but
1: yeah yeah just yeah just super quick yeah um the sizing of the thing so that's that's very difficult to do so we do know that there are um i don't want to say age related because we don't, i don't want to get confused with the person's biological age but like temporally like in earth time earth age there is a difference in how the skull or the body kind of looks mainly due to adaptation like we're not hunter gatherers anymore mm-hmm. we're currently sat down on hopefully comfy chairs yep. <laughs> they weren't doing that 10,000 years ago they were busy they were always active in terms of like but then preservation is kind of like a big thing so I would say like the biggest one of the biggest differences between a skull that I say that I get called in you know from the police here say we found a skull can you pop down to the morgue or can you pop around to have a look and it's modern it's grease and it's the smell right because bone is a mixture of organic compounds and inorganic compounds so that organic part of it is the bit that produces the smell and the grease and everything and we can see the grease we can Feel the grease and we can smell the grease that's on it and we're just like hmm, this is modern <laughs> this is definitely new but if we're talking ten thousand years old it's just dry it is dry human bone.
0: So, so i'm guessing you mentioned like the biscuit consistency yeah. is, that, is that it's just hardened by that point
1: it's hardened yeah that the, that biscuit crumb, crumb consistency all is solely dependent on the environment that it's in
0: hotter climate in Mexico kind
1: of Yeah, so it's a lot drier. However, the skeleton I was dealing with was found in the cenotes. So it's kind of found in those underwater cave systems. Right. So, and then our diver actually found it, retrieved it, spent, God knows, months and months doing pre-treatments on it so we could actually touch it without it disintegrating.
0: So has there ever been a case where you've been called in to identify someone via their remains and for whatever reason you've not been able to
1: it's it all depends on what what's been kind of given to us so in in terms of my stuff as in we normally get i'm trying to think off the top of my head now so we we normally get a lot of um emails from police or stuff like that say like they'll they would have found something they'll take a picture is this human? Yes or no. If it is human, right. Okay. What can you tell us? And sometimes it's just like, all that's available is say the upper part of the upper arm bone, the humerus. And it's just like, I can only tell you so much. I can tell you it's human. I can tell you that it's the, you know, proximal portion of the humerus, which is the upper segment. I can most probably try to do a sex estimation on it to say, is it more likely to be male or female? And if it's an adult, as in over the age of 18, or if it's younger than 18, that's, and then full stop, there's nothing more I can tell you. That's when I would normally suggest, or just like, if especially if it's modern, it's like one of the things you can do, like you you can fork out money and we can take a sample for DNA, you know, and potentially we can try, try and get a hit that way.
0: Because normally you think of DNA as being mine skin cells and soft tissue don't you rather than bones but i know that
1: the bone is actually really good in certain circumstances so one of my in the forensic anthropology realm and stuff like that my main specialism or the thing that i tend to more gravitate towards in like casework and being a practitioner is more in the world of dvi which is disaster victim identification So it's more your mass fatality events, working on like plane crashes, tsunamis, building fires, more stuff like that. And it is one of those. So when it comes to DNA, it's just like, yeah, okay. We've got a body here. It's in heavy decomposition. We can't use the skin. We can't use the muscle because it's decomposing. It's not good enough, really. Okay, what can we take? We'll take a bone sample.
0: Is it? As easy to get DNA from a bone as it is soft tissue, or is the process slightly different?
1: Well, we've got to cut into it.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: That's a, you know, there's a there's a little bit more of a um, strength that needs to happen to get down to it, and you use a bone saw, something like How that. How much
0: would you cut off? Are we talking?
1: God, not a lot. So normally, if 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 the body is complete, what well, heavy decom, we would take it from the femur, so from the thigh bone, and we take it from like the shaft the main length of it so we would do so if the body is still fleshy we would perform something with the forensic pathologist that's there with us perform like an h incision so cut the top and so cut deep at the top cut deep at the bottom draw a line down the middle and then sounds really
0: i know what you mean though. horrific i know what you mean yes then, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and then open it like a book
0: yep got you
1: We've got bone then, and then we can take a bone sample. And I would say it's like two, three centimetres all the way down in like a V, like a wedge. Pop it out, take it for sampling, close them back up. (laughs) So, yeah, so bone is really good. Also teeth. Teeth are fantastic
0: because teeth are not bone. Is that the thing you go for first when trying to ID someone? Is it the teeth?
1: So we've got three golden... Three rules when it comes to positive identification in that type of scenario, DNA, dental, and fingerprints. And that's normally the order we'll go in, in preference, we'll normally always try and do DNA, then we'll try and do odontology, or dental, we'll get a forensic odontologist, a forensic dentist in to do that, and then we'll go to the fingerprints as and then. But a lot of the uh, forensic odonts and dental people that I know, I got on with quite a few of them. But I tell them that I do not like teeth in the slightest (laughs) because they're small, they're finicky, you know, they're just, but they can tell you a lot of information. So what I normally like to tell them is I really like teeth because I get to extract it and destroy it for sampling. Oh, God. And they go, how could you do this? Like, there is so much more information you can get from it. I'm like, "Ah, I'm getting DNA
0: from it. Like really night- good. Nightmare dentist pulling teeth with a big grin on his face. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of those. <laughs> good God. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. Forgive me if I'm wrong, based on your accent, you sound mank to me on my way off. Nah, I'm mank. Mank, right. Yeah. How'd you end up in Bournemouth? <laughs>
1: uh,
0: cause that's Nothing against was. Bournemouth, by the way. Nothing against Bob's. No, it's, Bournemouth. It,
1: it, it's odd because I'm one of the few northerners where I am.
0: <laughs> Do you get the piss taken out of you for it?
1: Uh, for how I pronounce certain things, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I ended up in Bournemouth. So. Lived in Manchester. I studied in Liverpool for eight years. Developed a slight Scouse twang. Okay, that's interesting. Which my folks obviously loved pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Moved to South Africa. Lost the Scouse. Developed a weird South African mank accent. How long were you there?
0: Uh, just over six months. That quick, and you you got a little twang.
1: I am a person who will pick up accents. I, I I'm a person who mimics accents when I hear it. I do
0: that too. So yeah.
1: most probably talking to you, I'll become more northern. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: exactly. <laughs> become it. more
1: northern. Um. So yeah, then moved back to the UK, moved back to Manchester, started to lose a little bit of the South African. Then job came up down in Bournemouth, so you move where the job is.
0: Absolutely, you do, yeah. So, yeah, I ended up down south by the beach. Yeah, I'm sure it's nice down there. Nicer than being in a in the middle of the country where there's no ocean.
1: It's one of those. I'm not a fan of the beach, though.
0: It's probably because you're a northern, northwester <laughs> like me. <and> we, <laughs> yes. We didn't grow up with it.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't really know what to do with myself. I'm like, oh, great, there's a bit of sand, a bit of water.
0: Well, the only experience we had really growing up was like Blackpool or Scarborough, wasn't it? So, Blackpool, Southport, Scarborough—gotta love it. That's it. It's not the best experience. No offense. Eddie yeah, it's de- it's
1: def it's definitely not Blackpool.
0: Yeah. Down here. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So at the, I'm just on your LinkedIn profile here. So at the unit, let's have a look. I'm just reading through it now. So obviously you're the certified forensic anthropologist, FA three. Is that? Am yeah. I saying that right? What's that mean? Is that the the level that you're at? Or?
1: Yeah. So the UK, uh, a few years ago. Try to develop a certification process, basically to try and to try and stop it at being a little bit more like the wild west, you know, of people just saying, "Yeah, I'm a forensic anthropologist," you know, and then just doing stuff. And um, so it's it's kind of like a a way of making sure and keeping tabs, you know, right? These people here are at a certain standard, are going through the processes X, Y, and Z. It's only been Around for the past few years. So it's still kind of getting its legs. It's still trying to develop in what it needs to be. So in the UK, we've got three levels. We've got three, two, one, because we always like to do reverse order for some obscure reason.
0: Right. So three is the lowest of the three.
1: Three is the lowest. One okay. is the I'm highest.
0: I'm thinking it's the highest. Okay. I
1: know. It's, it's <laughs> such a weird system. Like I wasn't there when they created it because I was just like, mate, just do it the other way around but no it was so it's three two one and it's fairly new like it took me a while to get onto it because I had already had quite a fair bit of experience before me and they're like oh you need to document everything and it's just like Mm. I need to document seven years worth of stuff right Mm. I need to go back trudge through all of my notes trudge through everything and try and find it all so then you can kind of get on the ladder to go right this is what I am so you're kind of given like a mentor, just be like, oh, you know, so if you're starting off, they can, if there's a case that's happening, they could be like, hey, if you come here, you can observe and you can learn what you're doing. And then you kind of go up the ranks as you do.
0: I looked at it, I thought, oh, rank three, highest. Here we go. Good stuff. I've got a hero Sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah. Entry level, amateur. Yeah, you've
1: got entry level. But they,
0: to be <laughs> fair,
1: because it's fairly new, there's there are quite a lot of us and there's quite a lot of us on that list of angel of uh, forensic ANTH level threes who have 15 20 years worth of experience
0: yeah but they've got a but you yeah
1: sadly yeah. It, it's kind of like starting off
0: not at zero
1: but you've you have like right, okay and then work you you you've just got to work your way through the administrative processes
0: yeah <laughs> it makes sense so it looks like you've been there four years now down at Bournemouth. Bournemouth. Yeah. So you're teaching forensic investigation. Is that full time, or because how do you if a copper emails you and said, you know, Sam, we've got some bones here. and you go, I'm <laughs> teaching a course, mate. I'll I'll pick this up on Monday. Yeah. The, um. So yes, yeah, so I'm full time at Bournemouth. uh
1: So basically, what happens, like, if we get something, the police will email us, and it's not just me. There's like a small team of us at Bournemouth who deal with the police coming in. You know, with oh, what's this? What's that? So. There's another um, anthropologist on the team who's another lecturer. We've then got one of our demonstrators, lab managers, who also helps, and then a couple of people who are really good at identifying animal bones. So it's a group effort. So the email will come in. come in. There'll be a picture, uh, several pictures. They're like, hey, this has been found here. Can you tell us if it's human or not? You know, give us a bit more. And we'll have a look at it, and we'll be like, or I'll look at it and be, just look at the image and go, this is KFC. Don't really need to deal with anything. I just need to get this double checked by another person just to make sure that what I'm seeing is correct, and then we'll email them back saying, "Stand down, this is not human. If it is human, then it's just like right, okay, do you want us out on site or are you collecting it and you want us down at the precinct or you know, do you want us down in the morgue? And then we'll kind of work it that way. and then we'll try and find time to do it essentially. But that's when, kind of like for me on my side, like I would work, I would say out of hours. So, not that Monday night to five, it's just like, oh, can you come down at seven o'clock? Yeah, okay, mate, sure. Um, (laughs) But then it's like when it comes to the big stuff with like the mass fatalities, I'm on call 24 7, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. So, it's just like I can get a phone call and be like, hey, this has happened. Can you get on a plane? in the next four hours can you get yourself to Heathrow or maybe not in the next few hours but maybe like can you fly out in the next three days and you'll be gone for at least three weeks so for that I have an agreement
0: I was going to say what do the uni think of that um the students are like sorry there's no teacher for the next six months (laughs) sounds mate
1: see you later ciao um (laughs) to be fair my students are actually really good with it so one of the classes I teach is all about disasters and how do you process forensically disasters and I teach from my experience I get a couple of my colleagues in to teach from their experience as well and I was up front with them and it's just like guys if I get a call (laughs) you're not going to see me for three weeks and they were just like actually we're really happy with that because it's just like it's really nice for them that the person that's lecturing them the person that's teaching them is a current practitioner yeah, we're not reading out of a textbook. We're not doing that type of thing, and it's just like, yeah, your timetable is going to be absolutely shocking <laughs> when I come back. Uh, but like, we'll deal with it as and when.
0: It makes sense because if you had someone teaching you who got out of the game twenty years ago, let's say, not that they wouldn't have great knowledge, but practices and processes, I imagine, change all the time.
1: Yeah, they're always updated. So that's what needs to be done. But it's it's fun. It keeps me on my toes.
0: It's like Batman getting a call, like, that's my teacher. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's my guy. Yeah, I, I'm still waiting for the day that I'm on a uh, deployment on a disaster with a former student of mine. Ooh. I'm still waiting for that. I've nearly had it. They weren't a student of mine, but I knew them when they were a student. And I was just like, I looked at I was like, didn't know you were going to be here. they <laughs> so
0: uh-huh. like, didn't know you were going to be here. And it was fine. Oh, I, I, I mean, it's a dark thought, but it's better to called into a case with one of them than to find out that you've uh you know having to deal with them on a, yeah. on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna ask a question actually about you know in in recent weeks in the news there was claims that some remains had been found on Saddleworth Moor. I knew this question was gonna come up <laughs> and it turned out to be, as far as we know, a bit of a publicity stunt from an author or something because <laughs> they found nothing. Let's say, best case scenario, I know it's awful because, you know, poor Keith Bennett and the other four were brutally killed by Brady and Hindley. But if a, if some remains were found, just going back to what you said about the amount of info you can give to an officer, yeah, DNA with him, I don't think would be doable because unless it's been taken in the 60s, which given he was what, 10, it probably hasn't. Could you only realistically say to them, it's a kid aged between. This and that, how much could you actually give them? Yeah, pretty much. It will be one of those. It will be, right, okay. So it'll be age
1: estimation, right, okay. So it'll be like, okay, I've aged this skeleton to be, be between the ages of eight and 10 years old. Full stop. What uh, would also, you know, if there's any signs of um, trauma, like skeletal trauma, mm. you know, any bone fractures or stuff like that, we would obviously note it and we'd tell them. But we would be like, okay, take a DNA sample, mate. Please take a DNA sample because even though you won't have like a direct match because dad when they were ten, like, okay, we're gonna do a familial match. Yeah, we'll get family involved then. Mm-hmm. All we need is like a cheek swap, and we'll be able to do the matching that way. So that'll be it. So the weird thing is in like for a forensic anthropologist, we very rarely can work on positive identification, like this is so-and-so. Our job is mainly to whittle down the list. So like, so we will go, okay, the skeleton that are, the remains that I'm looking at, this is of a male individual. Okay, so on our list, we can cut out <laughs> all females that are missing. Age range, oh, I'm dealing with, you know, somebody between the ages of 21 and 30. Okay, well, I can get rid of all the kids, I can get rid of all the oaps can <laughs> get rid of all of those. Is that is focus... <laughs> oh god well, because i'm classed as an oap now cool yeah, um, but too. yeah it's but we can get rid of all of those and we can kind of focus on this
0: yeah
1: right okay what's the next thing oh well they're around about i don't know 178 centimeters tall what's that in inches and feet
0: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> you know um right do the conversion right what type of anti-mortem information do we have so the living information from the people that reported them missing or something like that did they say that they were around about that tall you know so it means that you can kind of get rid of the people that are like six foot two get rid of those people you can get rid of the the people who are a lot shorter than that and you can kind of look within that stature range and be like, right, okay, we've created now part of this biological profile. Now we need to go into stuff that is a little bit more detailed. Can we see any old trauma on, say, the skeleton, the human remains? You know, can we see an old fracture? You know, say that you've broken your arm when you were 15, and they died when they were 25. Well, we can see, still see signs of that on your skeleton. And that's actually really useful information for us because if we don't see the signs that that bone has been broken, right, we can tick that person off the list. It's not going to be there, right? Okay, they didn't have this. We can tick this off. And then also certain types of diseases can leave an impact on the skeleton. So on the other spectrum, so say that the individual was in their sixties. We'll make it easier. Say the individual was in their late thirties, early forties. Yet they suffered really badly with arthritis we would be able to see that on the remains so it's just like okay we're actually we've aged this person to be around about 30 to 40 years old but we're seeing a high amount of arthritis in the hips all right okay so we can then start filtering some people in filtering some people out we can build a a much stronger profile which then helps then like the people who are trying to find who it is a lot more to go on
0: Makes sense. The way you've worded it is good with the filter. I just picture like an online filter when when you're looking for something, shoes, clothes, anything. Obviously this is slightly different. Yeah. But, you know.
1: Same process.
0: Yeah. Six foot, male arthritis. Even you know, if they had like a bunion or something with the bone yeah. shape.
1: Something like that. Or, you know, did they have any surgery that would have impacted part of the skeleton or anything, hip replacements, shoulder replacements? Stuff like that, that is fantastic for us because if you get a hip replacement, shoulder replacement, knee replacement, it comes with digits <laughs> on the replacement and we can go, cool, contact the manufacturer because that's associated with a specific person.
0: It's so weird, isn't it? Like the barcode and stuff or whatever, a serial number on these. Serial
1: numbers, yeah, it's really I assume useful. that's why they
0: do that though, right? That must be part of the reasoning as to why they do that. It's really good to have, yeah. It's really morbid as well.
1: Yeah, to be fair, my life is pretty morbid, but this is a normal conversation for me, so.
0: <laughs> I feel like you've got to have a certain personality to work within the field. Am I right in thinking that?
1: Yeah, weirdly, a lot of us, a lot of us are like, we're not doom and gloom when you talk to us. We're not like, oh, today's terrible, oh, this. It's We're, we're generally quite upbeat in like day-to-day life and and everything else and then like the we become serious when we're obviously working yeah but all of us just seem to have kind of like a very like friendly outward personality type thing not saying that we're like extroverted a lot of us are heavily introverted <laughs> um but it's that type of thing and it's personal i think that helps with some of the nature of what we deal with because we deal with some of the worst things imaginable yeah so the fact that we're generally quite upbeat, I think it helps us combat what we're dealing with.
0: Definitely. I think being what I would call maybe of a, a helpful nature. Yeah. And an investigative nature. So you're going to go out your way to you know, find out as much as you can about these remains
1: yeah that's normally it's what one of my friends says to me as well it's whenever we do the big cases like the like the disaster victims plane crashes or war crimes stuff like that we normally go in because of the type of people we are we know it's very difficult and the likelihood of it happening is very small we always go i want to identify everyone i want to make sure i i will try tooth and nail i will give everything that i can to try and get that identification to go through. And it's all about that. Like we said, it's like giving personalities. Like the other way that we kind of look at it is um, if the roles were reversed, I would really hope that somebody out there with a very obscure skill set was going to try and give me back my name if I was ever, ever brutally murdered and whatever. So it's kind of like I'm putting in the effort that I would kind of expect from another person.
0: Do you feel that people in, I think it's fair to say that your role is pretty niche. Yeah. Do you think people within roles such as yours or forensic archaeologists or the, all the different type of ologists you can have within forensics, <laughs> yeah. do you think they're kind of underappreciated, not necessarily by the cops and the people on the investigations, but by the general public? Because I feel like a lot of the roles people don't even know exist and it kind of goes on behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, as in as in, like my field, there's a lot of us public perception massively changed because you had um, all the names have now completely gone. Uh, You had the Kathy Reich's books that came out, which then led on to uh, the TV show Bones, which really put a massive light on what my profession supposedly was, massive dramatization. But it is kind of one of those. It's like, okay, I don't kind of mind the fact that it's a little bit underappreciated or kind of unknown. Because the way I see it is that I don't really want to be seen. If I'm out on a case, I don't want to be pinpointed as, hey, look, that's Sam. Oh, oh, what's he doing? Oh, something bad's happening. Right. Got it. I like the fact that there is a little bit of, for the public side, anonymity that comes with it. Because then also, like, we don't, it's very difficult then if we're working on a big case that's disaster based. We don't want then people who've been affected by it finding us and going, have you managed to identify this person? So the fact that they kind of don't know we exist is actually sometimes really
0: helpful. Well, this is just going to be an audio episode, so people will know you exist now. Oh, yeah, no,
1: it's fine. Yeah, it, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, I knew what Sorry I was getting myself into. <laughs> it's
0: really interesting, though. It's It's one of those aspects of true crime that, it's again fleetingly, even in true crime cases, because it's to do with stuff that you can't identify straight away, which is probably rarer than people appreciate. Maybe um, in the UK, yeah, yeah, in the UK, yeah, it's just one of those jobs. And I thought, you know, I need to ask what that's all about. But I really appreciate your candour. It? It's yeah, <laughs> it's been interesting to hear from you. So I really appreciate you giving up your time today.
1: Nah, it's cool. It's it's always nice to talk about
0: the profession. In
1: a very easy way. Uh, it's like, for me, it's it's like, I hear it everywhere. But I'm in the profession, so I should be hearing it everywhere.
0: Yeah. And I've got a
1: lot of students who are kind of like, oh, I really want to I really want to get into this profession. It's just like, well, okay, then you're in for the long haul. It's not easy at all. You really have to fight for it. You
0: can't just dip your
1: toe in. Sadly not. Which, to be fair, that's that's how a lot of us kind of operate. Like, I'm full-time at the university, but I still work on the side as a practitioner because there's not that many roles as a full-time practitioner in the UK.
0: Makes sense, for the reasons you've said,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think there's only like four.
0: But you can tell Sam's passionate about his job because behind him, I don't know if you're at home or at the office now, but there, there is a full skeleton display, which I assume is not real.
1: It is not real, no, uh, <laughs> I'm, and, and I'm at home. But yeah, I've had... I've had him since I was an undergraduate student. So I've had him for like 11, 12 years.
0: Wow. He's aged wonderfully.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's done really well. The thing is, is that when it was lockdown and we had to teach online, he became really useful to teach because I had to dismantle him. Has he
0: got a name? Uh, His name is Gibbs. Gibbs. Okay. Yeah. Hello, Gibbs.
1: Yeah. Gibbs. He's he's been through thick thick and thin. Really good listener. (laughs) doesn't talk that much which is fine well he's not got ears. very supportive yeah <laughs> strong silent type
0: <laughs> oh dear no it's been a pleasure bud really appreciate you uh coming and speaking to me and, and telling me and my listeners about anthropology thanks for your time any any final parting thoughts not really it's
1: one of those it's the when it comes to forensic anth, it's it all depends on what you want to specialize in as well. You can be a trauma specialist if you want. So, you can really study, like, they call it uh, fractography. So, fracture patterns, what type of weapon did they use and stuff like that. Um, you can do facial reconstruction. You've got a skull, try and build a face on it. For me, it's I, I, I study human variation. And my specialist is DVI, so working on mass, so like mass fatality events, which is fun. In my eyes, because it keeps me busy. But yeah, so forensic anth, it's even though it's a niche area to be, it can also be very broad in how
0: you actually work it. Is there anything you wish you'd have known when you first started? Perhaps a piece of advice you could give to your younger self? Slow down.
1: <laughs> Slow down, because it feels like for me, um, I kind of not not like I rushed into it, but part of it is just like. It would have been good if I just took a lot, just just my time a little bit more, you know, just to appreciate more of the but all the other stuff that happens in life instead of deep diving into this.
0: Okay, I can imagine with something like this, it'd be all encompassing, and it'd be like you'd live, breathe, sleep, dream it, and then you yeah. 10 years later and think, oh wow,
1: yeah. Okay, that's kind of it's kind of what it is. Yeah, <laughs> like my first. My first case was when I was 20, was when I was 23 years old, the plane crash. And it's just like, oh man, that was like so long ago. But I'm like, I haven't stopped since. I'm like, where did my 20s go? <laughs>
0: yeah, they do fly by. What do you wish you could do or could have done more of them? What's How do you fill your free time when you get any?
1: <laughs> if and when. The thing that I would... It's not necessarily due to the profession that destroyed it. It's more due to doing a PhD that destroyed it. Reading, reading for pleasure, reading for fun. I still like, I'll I'll pick up a book and I'll start it and I'll get this little pinch of guilt. Like, if you've got time to read this, you've got time to read a, a, a research article. Oh, if you've got time to read this, then you've got time to be writing this. So it's really trying to unlearn that aspect. And the same with like gaming as well. As soon as I pick up PlayStation controller or like my Switch, it's just like, surely you should be
0: uh, (laughs) doing this. And it's just like, oh, okay. You sounded like that. Is it the Royal Navy advert where it goes, if you can fix a car, you can fix a Harrier jet. If you can fix a jet, you can fix a space (laughs) rocket. (laughs) I know what you mean, though. You get that kind of guilt, don't you? Sometimes it happens. Like If I'm watching TV one night, it's like, bear in mind, like yourself, work full time. Yeah. on the side i don't look at human remains in person no. but i read about them for the pod yeah and if you sit down and watch tv one night you think this is a wasted hour of my life i could be doing yeah. something it's it's weird isn't it you, you find it hard to sit there and do nothing
1: yeah and it's uh it's i'm still graduated in what 2018 it's now five years and i'm still dealing with the guilt of like wow. oh let's just deal with this no no read this instead do this so that's the one thing that I wish I could get back into. Well, that isn't necessarily, like I said, that's due to more of the academy, not the being a practitioner.
0: Makes sense. Busy job working at unit I imagine. It's, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Non-stop onslaught. Let's let's go. <laughs> yeah. As long as you love it, which I think by the sounds of it, you do.
1: I It's, it's one of those. I, it's my go-to thing. I say it. it
0: keeps me out of trouble. That's always good i think what we should do sam is for those listening <laughs> this is the third recording we've had to do with sam because of my shocking internet so i think before we uh keep going on into multiple double digits here again it's been so much pleasure for you to speak to me thanks for your time but uh, i think we'll end it there if that's okay yeah no problem cool for everyone else listening this comes out on a monday at the time of recording i don't know when that'll be But on Thursday, there's going to be an episode of some description. I'm not that far in advance as far as planning goes, but there will be an episode on Thursday. So we'll catch you all next time. And thanks for listening.